The other big mistake, of course, is lifestyle inflation. It's a really common thing. Um, we made more money every year for years, and we were saving almost nothing. We were spending all of it. Uh, and so at each turn, we just spent what we earned rather than having that financial plan and, and making choices. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode 110. Clark, how's it going today? Good, how are you? Oh, doing great, man. The weather's super warm here. We actually had a a, a uh, 87 degree day, if you can believe it, down here in Texas. It was a record. Wow, that's crazy because we're still in the, I think, well, we're just in the 50 today, but it's been in the 40s. It's been pretty cold here in New York, so that sounds that sounds a little nicer right now. Yeah, you know, I got an email this morning, too, that the uh, the Schwab TD Ameritrade uh, deal that we talked about last week is now official. Yeah. Uh, who do you who do you use? You you have TD or Schwab? So I actually have a, a little bit with TD. And it's mainly just through a self directed uh, some self directed investments with my four hundred one k, and then I also have some HSA investments that flow through there, and then also uh, an old ESA account. So who knows what it'll look like when it's all said and done? They said they're going to keep the Schwab name. But I think the you know the platforms and and everything will kind of be user friendly like they are now and yeah because I do my HSA through Lively and they partner with TD Ameritrade so I have all, all the investments through them but kind of curious how that's all going to play out as well if if that's kind of kind of shift through or yep. maybe that just gives me an excuse to to get it back to Fidelity I don't know but interesting yeah you know, we'll just have to see how how it works out but you know it kind of got me thinking too you know we're we're kind of getting in the holidays here which also means we're getting towards that year end. You know, and kind of one of the things that, that, that I like to do, and I think that a lot of people like to do is kind of look at, look at the finances, take a, take a thousand foot, you know, maybe 30,000 foot view, do a net worth statement. I, I actually like to do those monthly, kind of run my, my personal household like a business almost where I'm, you know, doing a P&L and a, a balance sheet pretty much every month and, and kind of taking, you know, month by month looking at things, but definitely at the end of the year, kind of take a little bit different eyeball, make some different calls on some strategies. What do you like to do? I just do it yearly, but but if you don't, how do you do it monthly? Because you said you don't budget, so how do you do it monthly? Yeah, I mean, I just track everything. So I just download my statements and and pull it all up, and kind of it's all automated, really. So you know, P and L wise, like I just kind of look at it, um, you know, that's kind of automated into basically a, a spreadsheet, and then I do the same thing with my net worth. You know, I've always used Mint and personal capital, but it just you know they they have so many. I've got some this high yield savings account, whatever with a GS bank or Marcus, I guess by Goldman, they go by now. And you know, those don't sync with mint anymore and yeah. some other ones don't yeah. sync. And so it's like, I, I, I got to get down and do it, you know, Excel spreadsheet wise anyway. So, so do you go into, do you go into category though on a, on a PNL? Like you go into groceries and food or do you just kind of do high level? No, I, I get down to like groceries and food, but I, I kind of, I, I mean, I have it under like, I don't know, maybe 15 categories that I just look at. And and really, I don't I don't use that to budget. I think I've said that on the podcast before. Like, I really don't budget. I just kind of look at it, you know, and just make sure that no category is like crazy out of whack for whatever reason. And mainly to kind of just do an audit and make sure that like my card didn't get hit for something that I forgot about or, you know, because you subscribe to so many things nowadays too, you know, especially on an annual basis. Like, you know, Amazon membership yeah. came through and I'm like, what did I spend a hundred and some bucks on Amazon? 
well, it was the membership deal, you know? So those kinds of things pop up when I take an, an audit like that, looking at, you know, 30,000 foot view, you know, on an annual basis, if I was out of whack one way or the other. Yeah, I need to do better at that, at looking at it by category. I do net worth every six months or so, so I have that under control, but probably should be a little bit more aware by category, but anyway. Yeah, different practices, but... So today's episode, we've got Ed, and Ed works in public education along with his wife. He grew up very poor and was always interested in money. Today, he's got a net worth of $1.2 million, about 300000 of that's in, in real estate equity. He's got a rental and then a vacation home that he shares with some friends. And then he's got several hundred thousand in, in retirement accounts, mainly equities, and then a few hundred thousand dollars in cash because they just sold a house and are, and are currently renting. His story is kind of interesting, too, because he, he used to work as a teacher, I think, and now he works more on the administration side, right? So he's kind of stayed in the same in the same uh, area, but it kind of had a shift in, in job focus. So Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, the episode's very, very, very fascinating, but he just kind of sheds light that, like, even if you do go into the public sector, I mean, there's there's a very you know, predictable way to, to get to, you know, millionaire status or be able to build wealth. You know, I think sometimes we think that, that teachers make zero money, but they, that, you know, we've had several teachers on here. And I think in, in some of the research in the, in Chris Hogan's recent book shows that teachers are one of the most common professions, you know, and they're, and they're very disciplined to be able to get there so that it's very possible uh, to get there. And, and, you know, a lot of these millionaires, that are teachers obviously have maybe not had six figure incomes their whole career. Right. You know, but like they've still been able to save and get there. Totally. So anyway, it is going to be a great episode, but you know, last week we had uh, Jeff, his net worth was 4 million. He worked in the financial industry for most of his life and then just recently retired. He's got a net or he's got a million dollars in, in retirement assets, just over 2 million in after tax investments, which he caught, he uh, kind of went into to that account and how he utilizes it. And then the rest in some real estate, including a pay for primary residence and a, and a rental cabin in, in Yellowstone. That he's going to let us, that he's going to let us come stay in. I know, right? He's yeah. listening to this. He's going to come let us stay in at some That's time. That's right. So before we get into the interview with Ed, I just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide a strong returns, healthy risk pro- profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high-level integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. We appreciate y'all tuning in the podcast week after week. If you enjoy the show, we'd appreciate you leaving a five-star review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. So please help us grow the show by sharing it. Also, if you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesinveiled at gmail.com. We've had several inquiries lately. Definitely going to have some great episodes coming up. We've also had several inquiries about our investments. Uh, we really appreciate those that, that have reached out to us that are interested, and uh, you know, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. So without any further delay, please help me welcome Ed to the show. Ed, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? I'd be glad to. First, just thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited for the conversation. Uh, I am a career public educator, worked in public education for about 20 years now, started out as a teacher, I've been a school principal, district administrator, uh, and now I run a program. 
I'm also married to a public educator. We've been married for 20 years together for about 25. Uh, and we, you know, like a lot of young people kind of started out not really thinking or caring about money. I, however, was, uh, grew up kind of poor. And so I was really interested in making a lot of money when we first got together. So we're bouncing around and I was in a job where I had a pretty good, uh, financial future. Uh, but my wife ended up transitioning into public education. Uh, as a teacher, I started volunteering in her classroom, and then I got drawn into education. And uh, it's here we are, twenty years later. That's awesome. So, did y'all meet at at school teaching together? Or how did that kind of? Yeah, no, actually, we met in college. Uh, we were going down very different tracks. We met in college, and then, like I said, I volunteered in her classroom, and uh, you know, it, the rest is history. Wow, that's awesome. And what's your net worth today? Yeah, today we're worth uh, just over one point two million. And what's kind of the rough breakdown of the 1.2? Yeah, so we have just under 300000 in real estate uh, that's in a single-family rental. And then we actually own, in partnership with uh, another couple, a uh, vacation house. So there's a little bit of equity in that. Uh, and then we have investments in, in stocks uh, in both a brokerage fund of about 200000 and just under 500000 in our 403B and 457 accounts. Uh, and then right now we're actually carrying just over 200000 in cash. We sold the house a few months ago. We're renting now. And so while we're waiting to decide what we're going to do next, where we're going to live permanently, uh, we have some money in high-yield savings accounts where we're getting bonuses, about 75000 in a one-year CD, and 70000 in a money market fund. Awesome. Let's get let's get a little bit into some of the details here. So you've, you've got some money in a single-family rental. Is that paid for? Or does that have a mortgage on it still? Yeah, it still has a mortgage on it, but it's cash flowing. And every dollar we make on it, we put it back into the mortgage. Uh, we expect it to be paid off in the next three or four years. Okay. So that one, that one you've got quite a bit of equity in it is, what, is from what it sounds like. And then you've got this vacation rental. How did that kind of come about? Yeah. So uh, I'll go back even a little bit farther than that. So you know, I described how my wife and I got together and bounced around for a while. So we, uh, when we first started out, we were like, uh, you know, many new teachers, pretty broke. And I only know what our net worth was because we weren't paying attention to our money. But our very first year of teaching, we bought a house and we bought it on a new teacher loan that allowed you to buy a house without putting any money down. And so starting out uh, together as two brand new teachers, uh, we had a net worth of about negative $130,000. Most of that was student loans, but we had a car loan and some consumer debt in there, too. Uh, then we worked together for 10 years on our career, worked pretty hard. Ten years later, we were making more money, but we bought another house um, and upgraded in size. And I know then that our net worth was about zero. So after 10 years of pretty hard effort, if we had liquidated everything, we would have been worth exactly nothing, which is better than negative. And then we just continued to earn and spend. And about four years ago, we decided that we would uh, go in on partnership and buy this vacation house. Uh, so we did. And the purchase of that house uh, was both a kind of an achievement of a what at that time was a life goal. Um, but then that's actually what led to uh, me first and then both of us together getting more serious about our finances. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about 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 the vacation rental. So do you do that on Airbnb or HomeAway or how, how do you kind of rent that out right now? Oh, yeah. Uh, great question. So we, in partnership with this other couple, we bought it and we agreed that our first uh, priority for it was something that we would use. 
And so we both use it um, quite a bit. Uh, but then when we're not using it, we actually rent it out with Vacasa. Uh, and they charge us a percentage, but they handle everything. And that was the other thing is we didn't really want to be uh, vacation rental managers um, because it's a couple hours away and it's not really our interest. So they handle all of it. And it actually works out that the amount we make in rent, it's almost buying itself right now. Wow. And, and how often do you get to go utilize that property? Yeah, our goal is to get out there every month for a weekend. And then every once in a while, we get out there for a little longer than that. And, and your partner about the same as well? Yep, about the same. Uh, each of us have the opportunity. If we don't want to go out, we can rent it. And then whatever it makes on, you know, that week that was for us, rather than splitting it, you get all the profit from that then. Uh, so just depending on where people are, sometimes they let it go for an extra weekend or something to make money. But in general, we both try and use it once a month. Makes sense. And you feel like that's been a pretty good partnership with, with the two of y'all? Yeah, it's someone we'd known for a long time. And even then, you know, I wouldn't advise getting into any kind of money sharing or partnership with friends without uh, some clear agreement. So before we ever pulled the trigger on it, we sat down and, and talked it through for a long time and actually kind of drafted up an agreement between the two of us. I'm not sure how legally binding it would be. We didn't go all that way. But it uh, things are laid out pretty clearly. And we've been in it for a couple years now. And it's been a totally positive experience. That's cool. Let's talk a little bit about the money that you've got invested in brokerage in the market. Is that in index funds or, or stocks, bonds? What's kind of the makeup there? Yeah, it's almost all in index funds. Uh, we are at about 90, 10 uh, stocks to bonds. We're starting to transition. Uh, our end goal is to be about 80, 20 stocks and bonds um, because we have the real estate. And then we also, of course, have a a pension um, that we'll eventually get. So that balances out some of it. So an 80-20 feels like the right risk as we approach financial independence. Um, the majority of the stocks are in index funds, of course, the infamous VTSAX. Um, but then we do invest in our 403B and 457. So there are your, um, you're stuck with the options there. We're fortunate that unlike many educators, we have good options in both. We actually have Vanguard in one of them. In the other, though, we have an index fund that tracks the Russell 3000. Awesome. Good for you. Good for you. And congrats on your financial success again. I was just looking at your blog at educatorfi.com for anybody that's listening to this that's interested in learning a little bit more. Um, and I just kind of was a, uh, briefly reading your story here, and I just want to read a portion of it for our listeners because I think it, it's pretty inspiring. I grew up poor, raised by a single mom. My early experiences and sense of limits created an early and unhealthy obsession with money. I planned to be stupid rich and pursued a career in economics that I ended up hating. Fortunately, I met my amazing wife and stumbled into teaching elementary school. We started out together as two broke teachers with a net worth of negative 130000 Then we financially wasted most of a decade. We were clueless about finances. Our lifestyle was inflated. We spent as much as we earned. Suddenly, we were approaching 40 and had little to show for it and no real plan. Our net worth was zero. So first of all, you know, and now you've been able to, to turn it around and at 1.25 million, obviously amazing. So I, I kind of want to talk about two pieces here. The first is how'd you pay off that 130,000 or 100,000 in debt net worth of negative 130, right? And then how did you kind of have that mindset shift from where you were to where you are now? Great question. So the mindset and I think the impact my childhood had on me is something that I'm still realizing even now, right, as we've shifted into these things. And so I did grow up with a single mom. Our, my dad left when I was in elementary school. And so watching her 
work full time, go to school full time, struggle to make ends meet, had a profound impact on me. And I felt that insecurity and I also felt a sense of deprivation. There were some opportunities for colleges I could have gone to that I would have liked to pursue, but we couldn't afford. And so that's really where I had that mindset around the whole importance was making money, right? And then fairly quickly, I realized I'm not actually wired that way. I'm wired more in a service mentality. So that's when I shifted into the public education piece. Within that, my wife actually uh, was raised by uh, immigrants. And so her father worked really hard. And so she was always financially secure, but also had a little bit of that sense of deprivation. And so our first couple years, we were making money and we were spending money and uh, not even wisely. It was more like uh, we the chains were off in, in the deprivation. And that's where we started accumulating that debt. But then uh, it, things kicked in. And we did two things right. And the two things we did right, which are good because they've helped us bail out of all of our other mistakes, are fairly early on, uh, we eliminated our debt as much as we could. We got things right. We stopped buying things on loans and credit cards. We actually had a budget early on. We did a cash system. And so it was only a couple of years into teaching that we eliminated all our debt. The other part of that is we both always worked really hard, both because we love our careers and our careers matter to us. So we've always put in a lot of extra hours and taking on additional duties. And so we're always earning money on top of things. And so that helped us pay down the debt. Uh, also, as teachers, there are debt programs that can forgive portions of your student loan. Uh, back then, at least as far as I'm aware, there was nothing that would forgive all of it as the public service loan forgiveness will now. But both of us worked in Title I schools, um, and so we had portions of our debt forgiven. And so in combination with that, hard work, paying some extra money, we were able to eliminate both both of our debts. Um, and then we were earning pretty well. And when I went into administration, we were actually earning uh, you know, well above what the average American household does. We were just spending it all. That's where we bought the bigger house and the vacation home. But when we finally got our heads right and made that shift on getting our financial life in order, um, that income we're earning has helped us turn things around very quickly. Wow. Well, pretty amazing. Talk about, you know, you said you, you bought the big house, right? And, and then you kind of turned things around. At, at the time, did you think you were happy when you were doing that? And has the confidence levels now shifted from being out of debt and having a, a more substantial net worth? Yeah. So... A couple things shifted. Yes, we were happy. And part of that was going back to my childhood. My whole relationship with money at the time was I wanted to be making enough money that I didn't need to think or worry about money. Right. And so we were in a period in our life where we could travel. We could buy a larger house. We could buy super nice cars if we wanted. Fortunately, we, um, neither of us are super luxury people. Um, so we never ever spent more than we were earning, but we spent all of it. Right. And so part of that was. Uh, looking around, realizing how much money we were making and moving into a nice house that was much larger than either of us needed. And so we shifted into um, that. And that actually has been part of our turnaround, too. And this is why I talk a lot about uh, part of it is intention and part of it is luck, right? So we made a lot of mistakes, but none of them were crippling financial mistakes, including this buying a large house, because when we moved into it, um, we ended up having bought at basically the bottom of the market after the crash. And when we moved into that, we converted our first house into the single family rental that we still owned. So both of those things turned mistakes into 
potential net worth, right? So we just downsized and sold that home. We were able to cash a couple hundred thousand out of that. You know, I can do the calculations now. And had we stayed in the smaller home and invested instead, we would have made more. So it was actually a net loss, but not a catastrophic loss. And it helped us save up money in a time where we weren't really thinking about it. Mm. Good for you guys. Good for you. Um, Just shifting gears here. Have you ever used a financial advisor? I haven't. So I've done a lot of reading to try and put our original plan together. Part of it is at this point, I I just don't want to spend the money, right? I feel like I've gathered enough that I've built a plan. Uh, Yet, when we get to a point where we're actually thinking about stepping away or approaching retirement, my plan is to sit down with a fee-only financial advisor and uh, you know, just have someone else kind of check through our plan and our strategy and maybe give some tax tax advice at the time. But now while we're in the accumulation phase, I feel comfortable with where our money is. So ever since you guys have kind of gotten a hold of these finances and started investing and paid off your debt, has your allocation remained somewhat similar? Is that something that you plan to change in the future? Do you intend on buying? You kind of talked 80-20, right? As a stocks to bonds. Is that something you intend on holding or changing as you get older? Yeah, we're actually closer to 90-10 right now. And at one point, we were 100% in stocks. So we are making that shift. And we're doing that as we put new money in. And so, you know, one of the things I write and talk about on my site, but one thing I, I love about sharing my story is a lot of my purpose now is helping other educators understand that you can build wealth while doing our important work and the work that matters. And one of the big advantages we have is uh, educators can invest an incredible amount of money in tax advantage accounts between 403B, 457, uh, if you have an HSA, and then the IRA on top of that. And so it was just a couple years ago that we even realized that we had access to that 457B. Um, and so we made some out, uh, started investing in that. And between the 457, 403B, we're both maxing those out. And a quarter of that is going into a bond fund now. And so that's starting to balance us out. And over the next couple of years, we'll reach that 80-20 and then we'll maintain that. Mm. And do you have any sense of what your, your ROI, your earnings have been on, on these investments through the years? It's hard to know. I mean, the short answer to that is no, I don't have a strong sense of it. I would guess close to 10% overall, largely mm-hmm. just because most of the money we've been putting in has been since 2008, right? So yes, right. Uh, I, I recognize that we're on this long run up and it won't always be that way. And that's just another part of the luck of our financial journey. So what are you doing now with that run up? Are, are you holding more cash? Are you are you not investing? Are you kind of just keep investing? Are you acting any differently now with, with this potential bull market stopping? So what we are doing is maxing out all of our tax advantaged options. So for us, that comes to, you know, almost $90,000 across everything. And we are still putting money into the markets. And then we are holding 200000 in cash, largely because of the housing situation. Um, over the next year, we'll decide, as I said, where we want to land. But we do have a plan with that, too, um, in that holding a lot of cash uh, is fine and you're missing out potentially on something, but the bull market makes us more comfortable sitting that out a little bit, uh, until we know exactly where we're going to land. But we've also agreed that if the market were to drop 20%, there's a portion of that that we would put in. And if we were to drop 30%, we'd put as much of that in as we comfortably could outside of our emergency fund. How bit, how much, just curious, you mentioned the emergency fund. How much do you keep in that? It varies a little bit. We've drawn down to about 20,000 now. Okay. 
And so going going forward here, 1.25 is is there a financial goal? Is there a goal to get in you know different types of investments or have rental properties or a passive income goal or a net worth goal or anywhere you guys would like to get to or just kind of you know taking it day by day here? Yeah, I think our overall thought right now is we would be satisfied or or consider ourselves financially independent if we had a net worth of $2 million. And I think our plan is to get there largely uh, by continuing to invest in our uh, tax advantage accounts and brokerage accounts. I don't think we're interested in owning any more real estate, although we're always open to that. But we live in a pretty high cost of uh, living area, and so there aren't a lot of good rentals that pencil out. And I'm not really interested in owning rentals that I can't see and interact with, if that makes sense. Uh, the other thing that, that makes the overall answer tricky is we do have a pension coming someday. And we invest now intentionally without factoring that into our net worth or thinking about that to keep us aggressive. As we get to a point where if for some reason we were to decide to want to walk away or we're at the age where we retire, uh, then we'll sit down and really calculate out what we expect from that pension when and what we value that at. Yeah, let's discuss that a little bit. You know, we haven't had too many guests that are in the public sector that, or, or those that have access or potential access to a pension. Is there some advice or, or, or maybe even a warning that you might give to those that, that have access to a pension or how should they navigate looking at investing if they do have a pension? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually written about this a fair amount because it is one of the things that complicates financial planning for educators. The first thing I would say is it's really important, no matter how far away you are from retirement or thinking about this, that you sit down and figure out what your pension, how it's calculated, right? What you're paying into it, what you may potentially expect to get out. It's amazing the number of teachers that have no idea um, they may be contributing seven, eight, nine percent of their paycheck to their pension and don't even realize that. And then they have no idea about what they can expect and when. And that's dangerous because particularly for young educators, a lot of states have shifted what their pension is. And so I've personally witnessed uh, older teachers telling younger teachers, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You've got this pension that will take care of you. But the pension benefit for a new teacher in our area is much less than it, what it was from someone who entered the system 30 years ago. So the first is really to educate yourself about that. And then the tact we're taking on it is we know, um, you know, I could calculate if we stop, if we quit right now, uh, we'd have to wait 14 years before we could collect anything. And we know roughly what we'd get out. So we could start factoring that into our planning. But instead, what we're doing is waiting until we're three to five years from that decision, and then we'll really factor it in. Um, that just feels like uh, helps us feel financially secure. And we also know we have this pension kind of backstopping our planning and our risk. Yeah, totally. I think it's an interesting conversation to have, especially, you know, I think pensions used to be a little bit more common in corporate world, but they've kind of gone to the wayside, but there's still several out there in, in the public sector. And, and it does, like you said, complicate financial planning for those that have access and trying to figure out what do I do? How do I go about it? You know, I've got a friend that, that was an attorney for uh, the state for a number of years, but he left the post uh, like a month or two before his pension kind of fully vested in the future. And he's like, well, I can just go back and do, you know, a month or two or whatever, um, you know, even as like working in a national park or something um, or a state park rather. Anyway, so Along your journey, what are what are some of the big mistakes that you would kind of caution people from making 
Yeah. So our biggest mistake was we really just didn't think or talk about money. And some of that was our own relationship, but it's also a real problem in education in that you're almost not supposed to talk about money, right? Uh, teachers are supposed to teach because they love teaching and they want to serve kids, right? Which in my experience, almost all of us do. I certainly do. And you don't talk about money, right? Talking about money or what you get paid is almost looked down upon. And the problem with that is there's also this idea that teachers are doomed to poverty in a lot of ways and certainly not paid with what we're worth. But at the same time, there are some ways to really build wealth while you're doing it. And so if you aren't even thinking about it, you can fall into that trap. And so our biggest trap was we just didn't or our biggest mistake was we just did not know everything that we could have done. The perfect example is, as I said, we have 403Bs, both of us. We could have been investing in Vanguard, um, VTSAX, at a very low expense ratio, pre-tax for 20 years. Instead, I got into that because I took an administrative job and part of the contract was contributing like a hundred bucks a month to it. So I just lucked into that. Um, that was not an intentional mistake. So we lost over a decade of potential earnings in the market. So that's a big mistake. Uh, the other big mistake, of course, is lifestyle inflation. It's a really common thing. Um, we made more money every year for years and we were saving almost nothing. We were spending all of it. Uh, and so at each turn, um, we just spent what we earned rather than having that financial plan and, and making choices. So those were our biggest mistakes is uh, growing our lifestyle and not investing early. Buying the big house was a mistake, but it ended up leading to us owning a rental now and cashing out some equity that we might not have saved up during our lifestyle inflation phase. So while we've made mistakes, we're also pretty fortunate, fortunate that they didn't burn us long term. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the ed education salaries, and we usually talk about this in, in our rapid fire questions, but as much as you're comfortable sharing here, what's been your range of income through your working life and, and what can maybe somebody expect on an education salary? Yeah. So we both started out and we were making in the thirties, I think. So, uh, we both started out, we were making mid thirties. I think she started a year ahead of me. So when I started, I was making 35, she was making 36. And the thing about teaching is those first couple years are really tight. And that's where a lot of the concept of poverty comes from is it's tight. You typically come out, you have student loans because being a teacher requires four or five years of college. And so you've borrowed money um, because you just want to do this job you love and you aren't thinking about money. And uh, so you've got your student loan payments. You aren't making very much, but each year your salary steps up, right? And so, by the time you've been in teaching for 10 years, say, you're generally making at or above kind of the medium ho median household income in the United States. Um, my wife, for example, now is a 20-year teacher, and she's making almost $80,000 a year. Again, had she chosen a different profession, she could be making more than that, but that's a solid salary. As an administrator, uh, you know, when I went from teaching into administration, I didn't quite hit six figures, but I got there. Um, and our combined income is close to 200000 We also both do extra duty or side hustle work. And so for the past couple of years, we've been within 200000 um, up or down uh, a few thousand, only doing work as public educators. And so that's why I talk about you can build wealth while doing the work that matters and the work that we love. Wow. Good for you guys. Good for you guys. Just want to jump into some rapid fire questions here before we get into some some final questions. What's been the most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Yeah, I think 50 or $60 on the jeans. Okay, what about shoes? 
<laughs> shoes, that's a different question. So in my job, I have to wear dress shoes, right? And so for years, I would do the, you know, buy Nordstrom Rack or in an outlet mall, buy the $70 or $80 pair of shoes. For the last couple of years, I actually uh, buy Allen Edmonds Park Avenues, uh, which retail for $400, but I buy them as seconds for $190. Um, and in the last couple of years, I bought three pairs of those. Uh, and they last forever and I've got a shoe guy who will do repairs. And so I think by spending a little bit more on shoes, uh, over the next 10 years or so, I'll keep these same shoes and save some money on them. So it's embarrassing to say a, uh, almost $200 pair of shoes. And yet I think it's actually economically efficient over time. <laughs> We're both nice, like yeah. fans. A shoe, so. a shoe, a shoe bank guy, huh? A mm-hmm. little bit. Yeah. Okay. What about a car? Most expensive car. Uh, so I actually lease, this is part of our lifestyle inflation phase. I leased an infinity for a few years. And so had I bought it, I think that was a $40,000 car. Okay. Uh, most expensive meal out that you personally paid for. Okay. So this was in Vegas. We went to a steakhouse with friends, uh, and we had, uh, the steaks were expensive, but we, what we actually ended up spending money on was they had these smoked Manhattans that were insanely good. And so we had several of those. So I think that meal, uh, for the two of us was $250. And that's by far the most we've ever spent on a meal. We're not big spenders on restaurants. Okay, what is worth spending more money on to you? Anything that you guys splurge on? Travel was always our biggest leak. We took a lot of pretty expensive vacations. We've dialed back on that a little bit, but what is we are both in agreement what we will always spend money on is if we're going somewhere nice, we will pay for the view. So whether we're outside or in the room, we can see the ocean or the mountain or whatever area we're in. So we spend a little bit more on rooms with a view. So no garden views for Ed is what you're saying. Not usually, no. (laughs) Okay. How much do you spend a year household spending? That's a little difficult to estimate just because in the past couple of years, we've made so many adjustments to our lifestyle and we've actually never really been good at tracking our spending. Uh, But with selling that bigger house and cutting the payments in half there, I think this year we'll be right around $60,000. Okay. Just tangent. Do you budget? Do you guys do a budget at all or have you ever done a budget? We did a budget early on when we were paying off debt. We actually did a cash budget. Um, well, we'd set a monthly budget and then use cash to spend so that we'd stay within it. What we do now is we set a general budget at the start of the year just to get an idea of where we are. And then we set up as many um, uh, automatic investments in advance, kind of the anti-budget method. Uh, excuse me. The anti-budget method, as people call it. Right. Um, so that's the only budget we do. We don't do okay. monthly or weekly. No, I was just curious because a, a couple of episodes ago or, or something, Chase, I can't quite remember when it was, but Jay shared that he doesn't budget, right? That it's it's hard and you're aware of your spending and you know how much you're transferring to a savings account, but not necessarily by category. And we had a few people write in to us and say, hey, that was nice to know that, that some of the millionaires you, you're interviewing aren't budgeting, right? And that, and that you're personally not. So I was just curious to, to add that in there. Uh, any favorite books or, or websites that have been influential or beneficial to you? Yeah. So books, there are two specific to kind of the path to financial independence for me. Uh, one, and I, I know it's mentioned on your show a lot, of course, is JL Collins' Simple Path to Wealth. Um, I also really appreciate um, Malkiel's, uh, Malkiel's Random Walk Down Wall Street. Both of those are important to me because 
I know that I have the tendency to want to figure something out and think I can do it better. Uh, and both of those books have really convinced me of the power of index funds and keep me from going down that road of thinking that I can stock pick. And so that's probably saved me a lot of money and mistakes right there. Uh, I also am a big fan of uh, Simon Sinek's work. And in my work in school leadership, uh, Leaders Eat Last has been a really important book for me. So I would name that one. And then on websites, Early Retirement Now is the one that's really helped me understand things like sequence of return risk um, and digging into that. That's helped me be confident in building my own do-it-yourself financial plan, at least for now. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing it. Just last question here be, before we wrap up, and, and I know you touched on this a little bit, is lifestyle inflation. And and I'm just kind of I'm curious, you know, today, right, I think it's so keep up with the Joneses, right, with Instagram and Facebook and all the social media we have and and sharing and knowing what other people are doing and how they're living and how they're traveling. And there's more traveling now, I feel like, than, than there was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, right, whether that's because it's cheaper or more accessible or whatever the case may be, how did you guys kind of turn away from that lifestyle inflation? And maybe what advice do you have for people that are struggling with that or or trying to avoid it? Yeah. So I think the first step is understanding why your lifestyle is inflating, right? So for us, it actually wasn't really keep up with the Joneses. It was, we work incredibly hard all the time. And so our balance to that was to escape by spending, particularly on vacations, And that also is what led us to the trap. You know, I said that vacation home is what made me realize um, that if I were to stay on the path I was on, I would be working till I was 70 and I'm not sure we would have anything even then. And so for us, it was really realizing that path. And then by turning it around, um, we feel like we have more control over our financial lives and that helps us feel more balanced at work and realize that if work ever does get to be too much or um, we burn out because neither of us want to be those burnout educators, right? We love our jobs and we pour ourselves into them. But if we ever need to step away, now that we've made the financial shifts, we aren't trapped there. And that sense of control and freedom was really important to us turning that around. And then the way we did it was paying attention to what we spend. And then really that that method where we max out as many things as we can, our tax advantage, and then some brokerage accounts before we ever see the money, right? So it's that automatic idea. And so that anti-budget piece of penciling all that out and putting the money away on the front end, combined with the sense of control. So our lifestyle has shrunk and yet it feels richer. And that that sounds cliche, but it's really true. Like we're happier because we're more in control of our life. We're also more purposeful about how we want to spend our life. We cut our housing size in half, but in doing that, we realized exactly what we needed in a house and that's what we've gotten even in our rental. And so part of it is just being clear about what you really need to be happy and what you need to spend money on and then using the rest to give yourself a sense of choice and control. And that's what's been successful for us. Wow. Great answer. I really like that. What do you guys do in the summers? Do you, do you work, you guys both still working with with those side hustles? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you shift from teacher to administrator, you make more money, but part of that is because you work 50 more days a year. So, uh, as an, as an administrator, I work basically a standard business calendar. So I work year round. Uh, my wife on summers will sometimes teach summer school or do some other side hustle. Um, teaching is also one of those jobs where I don't blame people after they work a full school year. Sometimes you just need a month to recover and regather. So she does that. 
Um, but we've both, uh, done summer work. Uh, I have done some adjunct professor work in the summer. Um, and now I pretty much just work year round in my job and she teaches summer school every other year. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good for you guys. So last question here, just as, as we wrap up, where can people find you? I know you have your, your blog, educatorfi.com and, and what can they expect to, to learn there? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, great. The blog is the place to find me. So once I got control of my life, I decided that I wanted to help people um, avoid making the same mistakes and kind of capture the information that I had learned and the experience I'd had. And so, uh, you know, it is financial independence from an educator perspective. I share the uh, financial independence information that applies uh, specifically to our profession, but also talk about my journey and my mindset. Uh, and the, the main goal is just to show people, as I've said a couple of times, uh, we do really important work and it matters and we can still build wealth while doing that. And it's important that teachers know that because then we will uh, get great people in the profession and we will keep people in the profession instead of have them burn out and stressed over money. And so that right now um, is one of my purposes in life. And that's why I write there. Wow. Really commendable. And, and, and what a, a great interview. Love it. Again, that's Ed net worth of 1.25, about 300,000 in real estate, 700,000 in investments, overcame $100,000 in debt. Uh, really terrific story. Thanks, Ed, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.